You're listening to Secondhand Movies. This is Morgan. And this is Joel. And today's episode, we are talking about Alita Battle Angel. This is this is your first time watching this. Yep. And so we, I I got to ask. I was a little nervous about you watching this movie because it's more animated, which is like a little bit more my style and I'm not even that hardcore, but it's still sure. a little bit, you know, I'm more familiar with that aspect of it. So, I was very curious because I was again, I said it, I said this in the intro. The intro. To this, yeah probably would not have brought this movie up but then you were the one that brought it up so it's funny to me that you're so nervous about it because i remember seeing the trailers and being intrigued well that's good that's very good it's it's one of those things of me and my friends we joke about it all the time we you know we call each other nerds all the time you're such a nerd everybody's a little bit of a nerd so it's okay Oh, definitely i mean i am definitely also a nerd we just have slightly, I mean, this is part of the reason we're doing this is because we found out that we have this weird synergy of having very similar life experiences, but also very similar taste. But it's like we have been sort of aligned just in a slight phase off. So like, the you know, like the idea of electric phase. Right. It's like we're on the same, uh, we're on the same circuit, but it's like our phase, we're like 45 degrees phased out. And so we have these weird overlaps where, like, oh, all of a sudden we've seen the same stuff, and then all of a sudden we're completely out of sync, and there's, like, 12 movies that we'll both say, and, like, I've never seen any of that. That actually reminds me of a Star Trek Voyager episode. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. N- <laughs> nerd. Nerd. Hey, I like I liked Voyager. <laughs> that, Anyways. Yeah, I watched a lot of Voyager back in the day, man. Right. <laughs> Kirk and Dolls, baby. You probably know which episode I'm talking about then. <laughs> I might. Wow. Yeah. But uh no, I, I I definitely agree with you on that. We are we're, we're nerds but in a different way. For and sure. so I don't know, it's just the the rap that anime gets, you know, everyone's like, "Oh." Sure. Actually, I think we will get into that in there's there's a couple of things that I can speak to in after I watched this, I was doing some general research on Alita and the history of it just as kind of see where this came from you know it wasn't produced in a vacuum morgan did more research than i did this is i mean i like doing research like this <laughs> movie trivia history is my jam yeah so it's useless knowledge that rattles around in the back of my brain for no apparent reason <laughs> so this podcast is trying to make that reason <laughs> i feel so validated oh no yeah <laughs> the but what I was going to say is I think there's some things that we'll get into that might touch on why I don't generally dive into straight anime. The overall ideas and the creativity of it, I am all for. But yes, there are definitely aspects of anime that don't work for me. But, I mean, that's true of other genres too. It's not like it's just an anime issue. So, one big thing... I still haven't said if I liked it. I know you haven't, but a big thing that people actually 
non-anime fans talked about with the movie mm-hmm. Alita was her eyes, how they were extra large. Yeah. And nobody like liked it. I think that's the stupidest thing in the world. Yeah. I I thought so too. It fit her character really well. Yeah, well, they were oversized, but I don't understand why it's a big deal when all of us grew up watching Disney movies. <laughs> Every Disney princess has these oversized giant pupils. This is why true. because it's a there's a certain aesthetic to it. It enlargens the eyes to make it more expressive, and when eyes are big, psychologically, when you're showing your eyes, there's a vulnerability and an openness to that, so it's easier to engage. Like there's lots of reasons why big eyes work, and in animation you have the freedom to do that, and so to me having exaggerated body proportions on anything inside the Alita universe to me was extremely okay. Because, one, it's in a genre of cyberpunk. Two, it's based off anime manga. Three, they're dipping their toe into animation and some exaggeration stuff. I mean, what's hilarious people complain about Alita with her big eyes, but the change that they made to Sonic was to make him have big eyes and be more cartoony. And that's what the, and that's what the uh, people of the internet decided was okay. Like, the original design of Sonic the Hedgehog was much more humanoid. Yeah. And was less less hedgehog. And I agree with... I am one of those people that agreed with them that went, uh, it doesn't really feel like Sonic. Yeah. <laughs> like, it didn't it, feel right for Sonic. It didn't. But the redesign, one, it, it resembled the game much more closely. Two, it resembled more of a hedgehog. Three, his eyes don't look human. They're big, exaggerated animation eyes. Exactly the same as Alita. The the video Nobody game Nobody can be happy. No, Stupid. It's true. The video game community bullied the production company <laughs> to get Sonic to be properly animated. Well. But to be fair, I I I agreed with that one more because it's already animated. Like it's an animation yeah. that you're putting an animation to and it's iconic. It's been around for a long time. It's very well very popular. It's a little weird to me that they tried to kind of deviate that. It just didn't seem necessary, but it's fine. I mean, they made a choice, and honestly, if they had released the movie that way, I wouldn't have boycotted or made a big deal about it, but I just find it weird that in Alita, a story about a cybernetic girl who has a battle suit, we're going to be weird about her big eyes. Yeah. It's super realistic, y'all. Yeah. The premise is already super grounded. What? Uh, yeah, that's what that's exactly what I thought whenever I went and watched it, and I like I I heard the uproar about it, and like you know some people didn't like it and all that sort of stuff, and I went and watched it, and I was like, what? <laughs> like, I probably had more issue with the like certain elements feeling too normal. <laughs> really? <laughs> like to me, it almost stuck out more to just see like Hugo being a normal dude. Yeah. Then. Than it was to see like the nurse have like a a fake, you know, uh, one arm be robotic. Yeah. Like certain characters to me felt a little more in world, in universe because they had some oddity. And some of that comes down to other things like 
sound design or not sound design costumes and wardrobe and things like that as much as anything else because other movies have done this where you have kind of dystopian or alternate versions of his of humanity's future on earth and i think the best ones do a good job of creating a cohesive visual and so to me alita felt very at home in that visual because she felt like she belonged with all the other synthetics. I mean, anytime there was anybody that had a cybernetic body or an Android component or something like that, she fit really well with that. Yeah. They, I thought it was very interesting that like she wakes up and she's just like, doesn't think anything's weird. Yeah. You know, well, she just accepts her reality type thing like it's it's it was kind of mind-boggling to me whenever i first saw it it was like wait like she's just gonna accept this and like it just didn't make sense to me you know like if i lost my memory and was asleep and then woke up all of a sudden had a brand new body i'd be flipping out Right. <laughs> well, and further into through the movie, I think it ex- does well explaining that. Not ne- it, it in a subtle way. That's mm-hmm. what I mean. It it does well explaining it in a subtle way. Right. And you know, you find out more things about Alita. She's got her power suit, and she's awesome. And so you know, it's it it ex- like self explains almost. Why right. she's just like, okay, I, I'm I'm okay with this new world that I'm in that's not familiar to me. I think there's some truth to that. I think also they're really making the idea that for her, being a human with a synthetic body was the normal. Oh. So I think part of it is that with her waking up, she does sort of look at her body and go, this is new but it's not foreign. Like, I don't think she's this... Because what we learn about her is that that was her previous body. I mean, she was in a synthetic body. Yeah. And basically the only organic material in her body was her basically neck and head. I mean, essentially. And and I guess it's not really clarified. I'm assuming, like, a certain amount of her spinal column, brainstem... You know, I don't know how far down it's indicated that she's supposed to really be human. Does this make her the Borg queen? A little bit. Oh, man. Yeah, a little More bit. More nerd coming out. <laughs> More Voyager. I love it. <laughs> but Data, she is not. <laughs> so I think that that's part of the reason why, as you learn, she is comfortable with the body. There's not a freak out because there are some characters that have different experiences with that synthetic, you know, that wasn't really a norm for them. And it is indicated that having the synthetic parts added or removed, if that's not something you're used to, can be very traumatizing or very unnerving at the very least. So I think within, with Alita, she is just, this is normal for her. So I think the body aspect isn't what really has really any effect on her. I think the idea that she is woken up and she doesn't know anything, she is curious. She is maybe bothered is a word that you could use. But 
again, she's so dispositionally positive that she doesn't really portray, she doesn't really dwell on the negatives of that situation. Um, but to answer in a nutshell version, and we can get into why, overall, yeah, I enjoyed the movie. I thought it was deeper than I kind of expected, as in there was more plot. The world building is deeper, and the plot level is, I don't want to even say plot, but the characters are rich. There's a lot going on with characters and with yeah. interaction. Um, the overall plotting is, I guess, really probably not that crazy. Um, but the but the world that they're existing and the characters that are interacting, their individual motives and stuff, are are pretty strong. And so I felt, I felt like it was worth, you know, watching and going through. And it wasn't just a movie trying to skate by on some visual language ideas and not have anything to tell. It is very much based out of the history of the manga and the anime. I did do some research on the manga, and I didn't realize the manga was like, was it 91 or 90? Like the first issue came out. It was pretty, it was like real early 90s. Yeah. And then the anime was done, I think, 93. Oh, I didn't realize the anime was that old. Yeah, the anime is pretty old as well. I thought it was more like 2012. I don't think so. If I, I mean, unless I looked at the wrong thing, but I think it was early 90s. I'm. I never did. I didn't do any research. No, it's it's fine on it. So I don't it, know. This is interesting in that it definitely takes a lot of cues from the anime uh, interpretation, and there yeah. are some things changed from the manga to the anime that are kept. Um, certain interactions, certain sequences are changed a little bit. You know, in general, I would say that this is the most sanitized version. Uh, it's the least violent. And graphic in most ways. Yes. Um, that's what I was told as well. It's definitely sticking to a PG-13. And, and there's something to be argued with that. I mean, we've talked about this uh, before. Yeah, in Hostiles, we talked a little bit about the idea of, of violence and versus action. And one of the things that Alita's kind of straddling is being a PG-13 visually but some some of the tone stuff is pretty pretty adult i would say yes it feels like a pretty dark film as you get into it it's it's skewed older than younger for me uh in terms of its audience you know i, I wouldn't recommend probably like a 13 year old 14 year old kid probably see this unless they're kind of accustomed to this type of entertainment already or kind of i don't know I, I always hate age recommendations because I never know what to recommend. Because right, it's all up to like the parent. It really is up to the parent. But I was just saying, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is, if they're younger than like that, I would be pretty cautious. Yeah. I would definitely, I would definitely like want to know my kid in in circumstance before I would want to just blanket say, oh yeah, this is good for teenagers. I think a lot of teenagers will like this movie. Don't get me wrong. Yes, but it is fairly, fairly dark. Um, but there is a few moments, uh, one really toned down sequence is, and I, I can't remember the, the villain's name, but basically the, the lead, um, henchman, the really big synthetic that ends up getting the upgraded, like shooting claws and Gruinska. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) 
He he kills a dog in the Kansas bar. Uh-huh. And in in the film you the dog is killed off screen. You just kind of hear something and then you like I think see some blood on the floor and dog kind of laying there. The anime <laughs> yeah, you see all of it. <laughs> <laughs> that that poor dog. That I'll just say that poor dog. That that sounds like the anime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like when um when the uh when Hugo's buddy gets sliced up, you kind of I mean you see it real quick. It's kind of like, "Oh, that that guy got got sliced up." It's again, it's much more graphic in the the anime where it's like, "Oh, that's one reason why a lot of people do like the animes is because they can be a little bit more unrealistic and over the top kind of." Sure. But it ends up like being a little bit more realistic in that way because it's like, you know, if someone's going to get sliced up like that, you know. It's possible. It's going to splatter blood and all that sort of stuff. It's going to make more of a mess than just, oh, there's a dead body there now, you know. Yeah. So Yeah, for sure. Sorry, sorry folks, a little graphic, but. Well, and I think it's also darker in other ways. More of the characters are gray characters, I would say. So, like, and I think this was a smart choice in the film version to change some of this dynamic because Ido is much more what I consider a gray character in the original manga and the anime because he really becomes a a hunter-warrior much more just because in those he's not really motivated by this tragic backstory because there is no tragic backstory i know so he is not married didn't lose a kid alita was his cat that died interesting so (laughs) i mean i'm not i don't mean any disrespect to the storytelling of the original manga because i mean that's fine it works but if you're going to make like a $200 million budget film, I understand maybe making those tie-ins a little more mimicked and really leaning into Ito as a father figure and a surrogate daughter relationship. And what it does too is it kind of sidesteps some of the potential awkwardness of having this kind of teenage bodied girl, even though it is a bodysuit and it's no nudity in that regard but I mean she's still very clearly meant to be resembling like a 16 year old girl maybe but she has a pretty girlish voice and attitude because she doesn't really remember who she is and so it I feel like it sidesteps some of that potential awkwardness of this adult man kind of trying to guide her and stuff it doesn't feel uh, it feels much more solidly in the film as like a father-daughter relationship because they make it very established like this is his daughter's name. This is a surrogate daughter relationship. And he's motivated by losing his daughter to be doing what he's doing. Versus in the original story, he just sort of ends up doing it and kind of realizing he likes it and he's good at it and so he does it. It's it's much less it's probably a more realistic motivation, less Hollywood, but it also doesn't really have any thematic tie-in to Alita's story. 
versus in the film they wanted to tie in a parallel. And I thought that that was probably smart if you're going to make a big budget film that you're trying to appeal to everybody. Yeah. Making making the themes of why Ido's doing what he's doing parallel lead a story. That to me works. Yeah, it, it definitely would make it less relatable, less, you know, yeah, like you said, just less connecting. And like, it's a little more niche too because, again, you're wanting, they're wanting to present people you can root for. And... In the original storytelling, it's a little it's a little more complex because obviously a lot of these characters on the bad side or the good side have more shades to them. So the good guys aren't always the good guys and the bad guys aren't always really just the bad guys. It it is a theme throughout the movie. They keep telling Alita like cuz she she seems so naive and so just willing to accept any the truth from anybody. Sure. And, you know, Hugo, the nurse, um, Zapan. Uh, I think Ido as well. Yeah, Ido. Everyone tells her, don't trust anyone. Everyone can be bad. Right. Or at least can betray you or yes. not tell the truth. Right. You have to be careful. Like, don't, don't trust anybody. So, yeah. you know, it's... It it comes across as like okay yeah everybody can be morally great in this in this right. world in that case yeah probably the person who gets the most cleanup and I don't know that it was actually the right choice fully is Hugo because in the originals he is legitimately more of what I would consider a unlikable criminal. Um, so in the movie, he's like just tearing off like the synthetic parts, which is a loss to the characters, but in, it's unclear if it's painful, but it mostly seems like they're just mad because they're losing their upgrades essentially when he's tearing off this parts of the synthetics. They're certainly not dying. Yeah. I was just say like, I feel like they can feel it. I mean, the way that they implied it. Is that it hurts. Is that it does hurt. Yeah. So that may be true. Let's go with it hurts and obviously it sets them back and it's it it is a big deal. Don't get me wrong. And the movie does make it frame is framing it very much like this is not something you should do. Well, essentially it's um like black market Organ harvesting. Organ yeah. harvesting. <laughs> yeah, but that's explicit in the original because in the original, he's actually harvesting the spinal column. Huh. So he is killing them. Yeah. He is He is straight up like, because these are hard to get, he's legitimately like killing them by like taking out the top of their spinal column. How fun. So he is pretty legitimately a murderer and a thief and doing a really, like, nasty job. Bad thing. Bad thing, yeah. So, I, I, and the reason why I say I understand why they changed that, because I'm sure they wanted people to be more comfortable with the idea of a love story between the two of them. In the original, she really becomes infatuated with him, but not so much vice versa. So this one, they definitely played up more that it's a romantic relationship, that they're both kind of, falling in love 
which is fine. I don't necessarily think that, that was a bad choice. It, it worked well with the movie, I think. I think so too. But I I wouldn't. What they what that changed though is that um what's what's the bounty hunter's name again? Zapan. Zapan. In the original, he doesn't really set them up as much. He just mostly reports it. Like so, basically, he doesn't have a reason to look at Hugo or be upset with Hugo, but but because of the rivalry with Alita, he basically decides to, um, kind of my my understanding because again I haven't read all of it and stuff, but basically, he decides to turn. He finds out Hugo's doing this, or to turn him in at least, and so he basically turns him in to say, yeah, this is the guy harvesting like spinal columns, so he's. He is become a bounty, but it's legitimate. And I thought that was a much more interesting problem than a frame job. Because in the films, a pan basically frames him for a murder he didn't do. Uh-huh. So they keep him pretty squeaky clean. Like he's he's committing crimes, but he doesn't feel criminal, right? He still yeah. feels like this really heart of gold, nice kid who's caught in a bad situation instead of like this is a kid who is so consumed by a vision of making it somewhere that against better judgment, he's going to do things that deep down he knows are really bad. Yeah. Like betray Alita and harvest people's organs and things like that. It, so I think they could have maybe, I would have preferred them stray him. He, as a character, he didn't. he felt a little boring to me. He just didn't feel complicated enough. And having him, <laughs> I'm serious. It was like, well, you want this, but you're kind of doing this criminal stuff. But I mean, in this world, this feels pretty tame. Yeah. It feels more like, it felt more on the spectrum of like, again, is it a crime? Yes. But it felt more like stealing like people's carburetors off their cars, not their limbs and killing them. Converters? What'd I say? Carburetors. Uh, I meant catalytic converters. <laughs> the mechanic over here is going to correct you. That's why I don't talk about stuff. <laughs> it's okay. This is why we talk about Star Trek Voyager. Exactly. <laughs> no, I totally understand where you're coming from because, especially rewatching it again, you know, I was excited because I haven't been able to, like, I, I watch it for entertainment. You know, sure. like, oh, this is a cool, you know, okay, this is a cool show. And so to actually watch it and watch it, like, in an analytical form, I was actually able to pick up on that. And I totally agree with you on that. Like, Hugo is actually very boring <laughs> compared to everybody else. Like, everybody else mm -hmm. has is fighting all this conflict. Right. You know, Jennifer Conley's character is even fighting all this conflict mm -hmm. and she's not even that big i don't think no um you know it's it is like and then you have hugo who's just like oh okay you like a girl cool yeah and they didn't <laughs> and and it's like i wanted him to be more evil at times not just to make him more complicated but to make him obsessive. And he is, because we're, it's kind of one of those cases where show don't tell. We're told he's obsessive about getting out, right? But we're not show, we're not showing him like crossing lines that we will, that I think 
all like 99% of us would go, I ain't doing that. Yeah. I, I think you needed to show that a little bit. Like, it, he felt like, oh, if I'm a halfway decent person and I was in this world, I, yeah, I could see myself maybe having to do some stuff like that. Like, like that's that's not good, but, I mean, I get it. He's He doesn't have anybody, and he's on the street, and he wants to get out of his place, man. Yeah, you'd probably do some stuff that you're not super proud of. Like, I think you can kind of get to that place with what he did in the movie for the most part. Right. Most of us are like, yeah, yeah. But not like he is this crazy person because he is so obsessed that he's willing literally to do whatever it takes, even killing people and harvesting their bodies. I think most of us would go, you know what? I don't think I would do that. I don't care what I want. I think I'm going to stop short of that. (laughs) Right. And then it would have been more interesting. So it would have been. It would have been the scene where she pulls out her core would have been completely different. Yeah, that's true. Because that, as soon as you said that, like five minutes ago, that was the first thing that I thought mm. was like, man, that one scene where she pulls out her heart. Yeah. Like that would have been completely different. Mm-hmm. And it, it would have like shown, like you could tell like he, the actor portrayed pretty well that he was like right i think he was fine like he was fine but he like kind of portrayed like hey don't do this yeah yeah you know no i, I mean he was fine as in the actor the actor was doing a good job i don't fault the actor yeah and i don't have to even fault the writing i think it was just choices made to try to tame him back and to simplify his story and to make him more likable yeah and I'm also a big fan of, I also like it when you strengthen the theme of that, that character so that their story arc makes makes more impact and, and more sense. So again, if you had set up his obsessiveness to do dangerous, immoral things, then him being closer at the end, also what happens is he, basically like they fix him, he freaks out, and they leave him alone for five minutes, and he runs off, and then he starts running up the tubes. And I don't remember exactly... I'm trying to remember how in the movie exactly... Because they fix him. So, they say it really quick, and, like, Ito says it really quick, and it actually took me, like, three or four times of watching it before I realized, like, what actually happened. But while she's dealing with Vector... right. The Centurions go to uh, that's right Edo's because uh-huh. they say, "Hey, we know H- Hugo that's is right. there." That's right. That's right. And so Edo H- helps him escape. Right. Yeah, and then he's on the pipes, which again kind of waters down the compulsive obsessive. In the original, he just left. He just leaves. So in the original, Hugo, which I think it's pronounced Hugo in like the original. Because it's more Japanese name. Yeah. But I'm just saying Hugo. I'm just saying that for anybody, if you've seen all of it and you're a big fan, I'm not purposely trying to not pronounce names. I'm just, for the sake of continuity, I'm just saying Hugo. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, we're mostly discussing the movie. But I'm only really bringing out the anime just to contrast some plays. I think that they made an adaption choice that was a little weaker than what they ended up with. It's still not a, 
it's still not bad. There's nothing that makes it that breaks it for me. And I'm like, why'd y'all do that? Yeah. It's just like uh, y'all were trying to accomplish something. I know what you're going for, but I think you stripped out some of what made this character really effective. And in this case, if you had set up that compulsion and you'd set up this really dark stuff, even if he just did it once, and I think that would have been the compromise. I think the compromise is the first time you show him doing stuff, you do exactly like what you did. You just have him like tearing off pizzas and parts and then somebody else kills him. Yeah. And he doesn't even know if they're dead or alive. And then later there's some stakes and there's a reason or something and he actually kills them and like takes out the spinal column thing. I think you could have done that once. Yeah. And then you could have just had Zapan find out, turn him in for that. Now he's wanted for murder. Like you you keep everything the same except you just have him cross the line once. And then you make him much more complicated, far more yeah. interesting, much more gray much more obsessive, compulsive. And then after his body is changed to synthetic, you have like one scene where he wakes up and he's kind of freaked out and they leave him alone for a minute to calm down. And when they come back, he's gone and he's gone up the pipe and then everything else plays the exact same. That's all you do. Yeah. Those two little things. And I think he's gone from like a B character to like an A minus. Like we've taken him up a good notch. Yeah. Yeah. So that those are the two areas that I think you could have done to just up his character a little bit. Other than that, I think most of what they did was either good because it streamlined or connected it, made it a little more interwoven because, like I said, Ido's not married in the original series. So is it Suri? What's her name? Shirin? Shirin. I was like, a Suri, that's, that's, no. <laughs> yeah. Different, different yeah. nerdum. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she... You know, she is much more antagonistic in the original, from my understanding. They were partners, and they both did the same work. But it, it's much more portrayed as, like, she's not quite as good as him. And so she's got a chip on her shoulder, and is very antagonistic towards him. Versus this is like, we were married, lost our kid, you know, got thrown out. Like, you know, it's just, it's a more complicated thing, but it's also thematically much more on point in some ways. Right. So I think, again, if you're going to condense things down into a two-hour-ish movie and set up a franchise and you're going to make $150 million, $200 million budget film, I understand these choices. And yeah. I, and I think they're effective and I think they work. Oh, yeah. um, they're slightly more predictable, maybe? Yes. Yeah, they, <laughs> I think they definitely are. They, I mean... Yeah, the first time you meet Shirin and, you know, it's right in, out in front of... The shop, the clinic. Yeah, Ido's clinic, mm-hmm. and, you know, you just see Ido staring at her, and then, like, right. the next scene cuts that they're walking together. Right. There's definitely know. some exposition dumps and things like that. Yeah. And, and, I, and for me, there's this really interesting... I don't know if I just make these things up in my mind. I I feel like I have this pretty good radar for what components come from different um, influences in the sense that this script was originally written by James Cameron. So James Cameron, most of y'all are probably familiar about it. You know, he is known for movies like Alien and Aliens. Sorry. Aliens and Terminator. God. Alien is Ridley Scott. I know. <laughs> <laughs> He's known for writing the sequel to Alien, Aliens. 
writing Terminator and directing as well in Terminator 2. Of course, Titanic and a little movie called Avatar. And so what had happened is he, he was introduced to the manga and the anime, loved it, basically said the technology's not there, very James Cameron thing to sue to do. He goes, I love this story. I will write it. I can't make it yet. Why? Technology's not there yet. All right, fine. And so he just sits on it for a while. Well, he eventually go. He eventually, I think he heard about this bef- even before Titanic, but he does Titanic, and then he kind of revisits this, decides to end up doing Avatar. And so Avatar has become successful enough that he realizes basically he's just going to sit in the Avatar world for like the next 10 years plus. So he's not going to get to Alita. Robert, Robert Rodriguez and him are buddies. They're talking. And Robert's like, man, you're not going to get this done. Like He's like, no. He said, I've got this like 160-page script that I've written. I'm just not going to get to directing it. And I've got all of these notes. Like he had, he had like, every scene like blocked out. I mean, he had huge details, right? And basically the offer, as I understand it, is that Robert's like, man, I'm just such a fan. I wish we could do it. And they had been trying to work together over the years. And Jim basically says, look, if you can trim down the script without getting rid of anything that is really key, like basically if I sign off on it, I'll let you direct it. All right, dude. <laughs> Deal. So, yeah, exactly. So he went home, like laid out all his cards and beat out the entire movie scene by scene on like index cards and rewrites the script off of that and gets it down to like a more manageable 120, 130 page script. And then uh, James, Jim stays on as a producer. And this is the first movie, I think they said since like Spy Kids 1 that Robert Robert Rodriguez has only directed. So, again, Robert Rodriguez started with this little indie film called El Mariachi, which he, he made for himself. It's a very famous story. It's like the most famous indie film ever, in a sense. Like, it's truly an indie film. He made it for six $7,000, which he raised by being a medical experiment, which is hysterical. That's interesting. Yep. And so he makes El Mariachi and he does everything. And so it's really well received. And and so anyways, he's he's become very well known that he will not only be the director, but he'll be like the writer. He'll be, sometimes he does his own visual effects. He does the, the composition, the music, or like he and his dad do the music, the editing, color timing. Um, he'll run cameras, be his own cinematographer. I mean, he's, he, he, the guy is very talented. But he's also kind of known for just doing that because he's just like, well, I can, so I might as well, and it keeps the budget down, blah, blah. So while I, while I highly respect him for all of that, my issue with it has been that it accentuates all of his particular viewpoints. And one of the things that's weird about Rob Rodriguez is he, he is a man of extremes. He basically makes hard R adult entertainment and family-friendly entertainment. And there's no middle ground. So he makes things like Sin City and Desperado and Once Upon a Time in Mexico, stuff like that, and Planet Terror and things like that. And then he makes Spy Kids and things like that. (laughs) So 
he doesn't, A, he doesn't really have a middle ground very much, typically. And two, on both of those, what you kind of notice is there's there's generally an element of campiness. So Spy Kids have a little bit of, they have a lot of artifice, kind of campy silliness. But some of that, I mean, I've seen Desperado and Once Upon a Time in Mexico, and they're very heightened, very much, like... I would say there's kind of an element, I don't know if camp's quite the right word, but there's definitely bravado and over the top. So, personally, again, we've talked about this, I like the idea of auteurs being a filmmaker. However, I tend to like them best when they work with people who who help temper their worst instincts and elevate their best. And so what I felt like is watching Alita, I went, ah, okay, you've got, you've got James Cameron and his part, his producing partner, uh, John Landau, who they've, they've done the big spectacle thing, right? For years. That's been their thing. The avatars. True Lies is really where it started. I mean, True Lies at the time was the most expensive film made. Yeah. And so, I mean... Basically, since True Lies, Jim has been making the biggest movies ever, essentially. I mean, even his smaller movies are like The Abyss, which is not a small movie. It's still expensive. It's still a big spectacle film. Um, so basically everything Jim's ever done has been these types of big spectacle films. So he knows how to write for that. He knows how to get scripts down to these incredible world-built, super detailed stuff, but then make like a shooting script off of that. So they feel really rich because he originally wrote like hundreds of pages of detail. He knows what everything's going on. But then he's he's figured out how to condense that into a story. And he likes archetypal stories. He, he usually makes the plotting pretty accessible, pretty big common trope-ish things, archetypes is what I think he would go for. And not to say there's not nuance or they're not things, but but he does kind of know, I'm plugging in these characters to do these things. So you have a script by Jim that's kind of constraining Robert to certain ideas and certain themes. And then you have that whole world that's been built by the prior work of the manga and the anime, which is, again, giving Robert these kind of cues, in my opinion. Some, some, some some rails, so to speak. But then everything that Robert's really good at, I think is really on full display too. Robert's really good about making a film look expensive, even if it's not. But in this case, I would say this is an expensive film that feels expensive and looks expensive. I thought that that was really interesting to watch. The script and the story pace felt much more James Cameron to me. Yes. But then the directing felt pretty Robert Rodriguez. Yeah. It's it definitely is like you're right. There's, There's kind of two voices in there. There definitely is and you can like you can get a feel like certain scenes are like okay, this is a little more James Cameron-y. Mm-hmm. And then in the next scene it's like okay, this is a little bit more Robert Rodriguez. Yeah. And so I felt like the things that I the things that I generally don't like about Robert got completely muted by by James Cameron. James Cameron presence in, in the best way but i think there was some flair and some 
kind of sense of fun adventure that Robert generally brings to his stuff that I thought was really good. And he has proven he he has done he did the Sin City adaptations, which I, I haven't seen but are well regarded as adaptations, that he can adapt um comic books well. And so I think Robert, when he's working off of somebody else's material and there's already some visual guidelines there, I think he's really good about fleshing the rest of it out. And because he's very creative, obviously, and he's very talented. But if he has like no grid where his instincts go, I'm just kind of at odds with. And I think a lot of people kind of find themselves a little bit at odds with as well, because sometimes it doesn't quite work. The other thing I would say is it was weird watching Alita after I'd seen season two of Mandalorian because Robert directed like two of those episodes. It's a good example, I feel like, of Robert's instincts to do stuff when he's not given enough guardrails that don't fit the universe. He, he, I haven't, is this the new season of Mandalorian? No, season two, it's the one that's been out for a while. Oh, okay. He, he was responsible for the kids on the motorbike things in Mandalorian where like the, the teenage punk kids are like, anyways, the short version is I was not very impressed with what he directed and I went, oh, some choices make sense now that I know it's Robert at the helm. So I personally have just always felt very at odds with a lot of Robert's instincts to add a level of, for me, camp. Like, I'll just say it's campy to me. Like, it feels hokey. He goes towards hokey, and I don't get why if it's not your story. If it's Planet Terror, sure. Go for the hoke. <laughs> like, that's what you're doing. That's all Planet and, Terror and, is. And something like Desperado, it works, because it's like Desperado goes back and forth between like this sort of over the top and so it can be almost hokey corny campy over the top but then it also goes in like slick action over the top but it's all over the top so it's it it kind of works and so but for this i felt like there was almost none of it and and it just really focused robert and he did he did a good job like i think this is one of his best films for me because he kind of had that that focused vibe from having jim and having John and and that that team. And then also because he's not doing everything. Another person shot it, another person edited it. So you're getting like if if the average Robert Rodriguez movie is like 90% Robert, this was like 30% Robert and it's perfect for me. <laughs> <laughs> like that's how much I want Robert. Like I'm like I want about 30% of you sir cuz you have all this talent. You have amazing experience. You're a good dude, I think. Like, he he's got a good work ethic. He's well liked by people who work with him. Like, I I don't mean this to bash on him. I actually have a tremendous amount of respect for him. But I've just seen a lot of our tours and a lot of really talented people. They they kind of end up getting into this hyper version of themselves, and I find their work far less interesting. I mean, I could say the same thing about Steven Soderbergh and. A few other people as well. So, I mean, Steven Soderbergh's kind of done the same thing. He ends up doing a lot of his own work on a lot of his movies, and he's talented enough to get away with it. Like, it's still good, but it's almost too much Steven for me. It's like, ah, it would have been more interesting if I had, like, 30% Steven Soderbergh and, like, the other 70% is made up by really talented people who are who are these other jobs. Yeah. <clears throat> kind of like M. Night Shyamalan. A little bit, although like, he's a little less. He's more just because he's the writer and director. 
Yeah. But but you're yeah, I, I would say that. Like I'm a big fan of keeping enough humility to surround yourself with the best people and hopefully with people who are better at at lots of things than you. And then the confidence to know where you're gonna die on that hill. And it's a weird thing. And I, I've I've been in that experience a little bit with my own directing where you have to simultaneously hold those intention because if you're not humble, you won't seek out people who are way better than you at certain things. Or at the very least, as good at you and can as good as you and can share the burden and share the creative vision and you can bounce ideas off and make sure it's truly the best idea in the room. But if you're too much that, then what's the value of you having thought through everything and doing all the doing all the work? And so that's kind of what happens, I think, when there's too many chefs in the kitchen or you kind of feel like a, a director has lost their voice or something. A lot of times what that is is it's just, well, I've, I've ended up in this situation where I don't really get to stick to my guns. I'm kind of overridden for a number of reasons, right? Studio interference is kind of the classic, but um, it, it happens for all sorts of reasons. And so it's this weird tension where you do have to have part of what you are being hired as as a creative, regardless of your role, is to be a tastemaker and a trendsetter. So it's like, you do have to have opinions and you do have to know why you're doing stuff and you do have to own it and you do have to have a direction. Otherwise, it's like, well, why are we hiring you? Like, you don't have any sensibilities, right? Right. So you do have to have these strong sensibilities of what is correct for the story and for the art while simultaneously being humble and having the ability to recognize amazing talent and bring them onto your team and, and pull them in because of your vision. And so I think in this case, it was a perfect example of Robert being able to pull in amazing talent and create an awesome team underneath his vision. And it made him a better director than if he had tried to do all of it himself. I think that's all it is. Did you ever see Ghost in the Shell? I have not seen either the original anime or the live action adaptation with Scarlet. Okay. Because I feel like they saw that. So Ghost in the Shell is 2017, Elite is 2019. Mm-hmm. So they saw what happened with Ghost in the Shell. And I feel like that's probably whenever Robert and uh, James got together and they were like sitting there talking probably and they were like, oh yeah, you know, look what they did with Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> ha 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 ha, I bet you we could do so much better and here comes Alita. Well, I think it was actually a lot earlier, but... Uh, maybe. But I don't think but, you're wrong. But there was, there. they probably were looking at some of those adaptations and going... Mm. Yeah. It, I mean, Ghost in the Shell is has such a huge fandom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, it, it's not like... A huge fandom, like a Marvel fandom, you know, it's, but it's one of the most popular. It is, uh, animes that I'm aware of. It is, um, I I had never seen it until some of my really good friends, uh, they showed it to me, and the movie was pretty cool. Uh, the first. It, it was definitely early on in my anime journey. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's what you want to call it. I put quotes up for those that can't see. 
Which is everyone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but it's definitely, it, it was different. Um, so I wasn't necessarily used to the whole anime world. Mm-hmm. But it was still really good. It was a very captivating story. And they did this in a season. Yeah. And so they go from a season. And this is like a season in the 90s. Okay? This is, you know, 24 episodes. Yeah, it's like 19 hours of content. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, not the, oh, we get a season, which is like. Eight episodes. Yeah, five episodes. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's not that. We grew up when those were mini series. Yeah. <laughs> they were an event, sir. <laughs> Get out of here with your binge watch five episodes. We used to watch four episodes over four nights and we liked it. <laughs> oh, man. Those were the good days. Um, they had real budgets like $3 million. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm just thinking about the Joan of Arc miniseries that came out. Like that's I don't know why that's the miniseries I remember right now, but I remember <laughs> no, it was like yeah. it was like a big deal. It was pushed for like weeks. Yeah. That they were doing this like epic adaptation and it was gonna be like four episodes and blah blah. And it's like that is a drop in the bucket. Like that's not even that is that is less than normal um sci fi T V show now. Like a four episode mini series. Yeah. Like it's crazy. So they take nineteen hours of content and they squish it down into like two hours. Right. For Ghost in the Shell. And it's like, of course it's not gonna be good. <laughs> yeah, that's like like you're missing so much importance and and in the movie, all they do is they do these really cool scenes, yeah, from the show. So I feel like that's where like James Cameron and Robert Rod- Rodriguez, like they saw that and they were just like, "Cool, we have the technology now. Let's let's shoot our story." I was so happy to find out that this wasn't a project made because they went, "Oh, here's an IP. We can buy it up and we can make a movie." This was a a film that was started because filmmakers saw the story and went, oh, this is a good story. We can adapt to a feature and it's worth doing and, and we can do it at a really high level. And in fact, we we have to do it at such a high level that we have to wait for technology to catch up. And so... And they did it for cheap, considering what all they had to do. <laughs> I don't know about cheap, but they, they didn't overspend, that's for sure. Well, I mean, again... He waited to, for technology to catch up, but it's still for for Jim. It really was a he he basically when about the the same time he realized he could do Avatar was basically the same time he, I think he said in his mind he could do Alita, and he just picked Avatar because he he thought Avatar was a more pressing uh, project for him. He he considered it more important. Like Alita was a fun movie, but to him Avatar was important. He wanted to do the story. He wanted to do the world. And so he chose Avatar. And then because it was so financially viable, he basically has a blank check to kind of move forward with that. So he just might as well keep making them. 
as long as he has creative juice, which he has said he has creative juice for like seven movies or something crazy. So, <clears throat> yeah, well, he so, just did one more. He said he was already filming a third. Yeah, they basically got like three filmed. They've released two, but I think he said he's got like story developed out for at least five yeah. or something. So, not to go too much on a tangent, but but Jim has done this before. He was trying to write Terminator 2, and he had the idea, but he wasn't sure he could pull it off. And so he was literally writing a character in mind with what's the limits of what I can kind of get away with. In, in can we actually make this? And, and when the very famous, there's a very famous sequence in The Abyss where the water mimics a human, he went, we can do the T2 idea. He said, that proves to me that, that we can make this workflow again. We can do the T2 thing and have, and, and have the, the, the liquid, liquid metal. metal. I'm trying to remember that it's not the T1000. That's the original. No, it was. T1000? Yeah, T1000. The T100. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was thinking one was correct. Anyways, yeah, so the T1000. He said, we can do that now. And so he's, and, and of course, famously Avatar, he waited on and stuff. So he, he's always been somebody who's been writing stories at the bleeding edge or slightly beyond what he thinks technology can pull off. And then technology catches up enough. He goes, all right, we can do it. And so, so that, I think that's part of the reason why when Alita came out, so many people went, oh, this isn't just another movie. This is actually really well adapted from the original. So if you're a fan of the original manga, the anime, I don't think you're going to walk away from this angry, like, oh my gosh, they just don't get it. And this Hollywood is so stupid. screwed up another one. Yeah, it's not that. And if you've never seen the anime or the manga, I don't think you need to. Like, I didn't know anything about this before I watched it, and it was pretty easy to keep up with. I think they did a good job. You know, maybe there's a touch, a little bit of hand-holding more than it had to. <laughs> um, there's a couple of things that, yeah, okay. Um, but by and large, they did a good job balancing exposition and hand-holding with just trying to catch as much detail as they could and build out the world. Hey, if you're enjoying this show, real quick, give us a five-star ranking and write a review so that other movie lovers can find us and we can all grow together. Thanks. Now back to the show. Christoph Waltz, mm-hmm. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Yes. Um, he plays Ido, and he, I actually did a little bit of research on him, and I did not realize that he was an all-German actor until Inglorious Bastards. Okay. And that was his first American debut. I didn't and realize that was his first. I knew he was like a fully bilingual actor. And like that's part of the reason why he has such a strong accent is he did a lot of work in his original language, which I thought was German. Yeah. 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 He's German, Austrian, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. He has like, like he's fluent in like four or five different languages. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's just, he is known as one of the greatest swings. Um, he, you know, he plays a Nazi in Inglorious Bastards, and then he plays um, an anti-racist in Django Unchained. <laughs> you know, so he's just like from one end of the spectrum to the other. Yeah. Uh, but he, he definitely, he like any movie I see that he's in, I'm just like, 
all right, this is going to be a good movie. I can't mm. wait to see his performance. So, like, he, he definitely is always one that I've kept an eye on and just, like, kind of, I always enjoy his acting. So, it was fun to see him and just see his portrayal in this mm-hmm. movie, too. I just love the scene at the bar where he's just like, stop, guys, stop, stop, <laughs> yeah. or no more free repairs. And everybody freezes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, all right. Yeah, 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 we get it. Yeah. Yeah, that's no, it's a good it's a good moment. Yeah. It just it does. It shows his character and just like, you know, he is still caring. Mm-hmm. Like you know, he it's that fatherly figure that he's supposed to have in this film. You know, we've talked about it a little bit, but Yeah. And he has good chemistry. Do you remember the actress's name? Uh, Rosa Salazar. Rosa Salazar, yeah. Which I mostly don't remember her name just because I haven't really seen her in anything else that she's done. I looked her up because I was like, oh, I wonder why, you know, like what she's done. And I looked at most of her stuff and she's done some big stuff. It's just not stuff I've watched. Yeah, she was in her next biggest thing is she was uh, Brenda in uh, the Maze Runner series. Okay, and I've seen the first movie of that. See, Brenda's in the second Okay, the third. Okay, I was like, I don't remember her character. I'm like, I yeah. don't know if that's just because I don't remember her. Or... Yeah, she yeah. just, I don't think she's in the first, so that would make sense. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the thing that I saw in my little bit of research was probably the most interesting aspect about her performance is that they ended up changing their entire design of Alita to be basically her. See, I was I remember hearing about that too. That when she auditioned and she brought in all her stuff, they just said like we're we're going to miss so much of her performance if we try to move that performance onto what we were thinking of doing for Alita's character design, which I'm going to assume is much more in line with like the comic, you know, manga anime style. And instead they just went we're just basically going to adapt her and we're just going to do the big eyes and we're just going to do the body, you know, the uh, synthetic body. And as much as possible, we're going to retain her performance, which they actually really did a cool system. It's it's even more advanced than what they did on Avatar. It's like the difference between going, all right, her, when she smiles, this like cheek goes up like by so many pixels, right? Right. Instead of doing that, what they're actually doing is they're recording and then they're using the technology and the software they're building the coding and using all the all the stuff you can do with machine learning now to actually go what muscles over this skeleton so if i designed a skeleton and then i put muscle on it like a human and then i put skin what do i have to do to the skeleton and the muscle to make it do that oh interesting so they're actually they're actually doing the engineering behind and so what they're saying is they're basically saying okay Visually, here's your reference, but then the computer is actually going, oh, to do this stuff, we actually have to do all this stuff on the back end. And so they're not just moving a surface level pixel. They're actually animating a very deeply learned and advanced model. And that's part of the reason why the animation looks so much better nowadays in the last few years is because they're they're actually doing it from the inside out instead of just going, uh... Her smile's not as big as it needs to be. <laughs> they're huh. they're actually motivating it from internals. 
and and so yeah, it's really really impressive. And then and then for the whole body, what they do <clears throat> is basically you're wearing a suit that has these little, you know, we've probably all seen them now, but they have little balls on them and little cross patterns. The motion capture. Yep. And so what they've been able to do is move from just a a motion capture to a full performance capture because they're doing a simultaneous, really high resolution, two HD cameras on the face. But then they're also doing, uh, I think they call them witness cameras. I don't remember for sure, but they call them, they're these cameras all around the set. And all they are there is to create a data point of where the little ball trackers on her suit are in a 3D space. And so it's like if you connect all of the cameras into a space, you can create a 3D a full 360 3D of where those balls are at any given point in time. And so then what you do is you take all that data and you you track it all into your scene. And then what you can do is you can put the model of Alita over it. And then you start to do all the blending work. And then you do all the final passes to sweeten it, to, to have the artist intention on it. So that, that really is her performance. It's not It's not just a CG thing. And I think that's really the difference of what we're getting now. We're really getting... The first time we saw that really was Andy Serkis with Gollum. We saw an actor's performance coming through CG. Speaking of Gollum, the polygon count on her eyes alone is like 9 million. And is higher than the entirety of polygons using the entire Gollum. Her eyes. That's the level of detail we're dealing with. That's That's some... Pretty beefed up technology there. The super, super detailed, super high res, and then they're having to do all the modeling work. They're having to do all of the physics simulations and stuff because you got to have, you know, hair. They they actually in the hair they actually had it. They said that they mentioned something that I thought was really interesting. They actually had a modeling um, to mimic hair cutting. So it was like, like they could they basically had like a way to sort of incorporate like a digital hairstylist. So they could sort of say, like, this is her haircut, this is how her hair falls, this is how it's cut to, to fall to this side or this side, and it's in this style, and these are the lengths. And So you could you could actually give it some parameters as if you were a hairstylist as well, and then you could do all the simulations and all the animation. So when people, people are very right to, to praise it, I mean, I think, I think that it, for me... I never felt like I forgot and went, oh, this isn't a CG character. Like, it always felt a little bit like a CG character to me. I'm not going to lie. But oh, that being said... Oh, yeah, definitely for me, too. It, because, you know, because I, I watched, like, one be, behind-the-scenes thing where they're like, you know, we just really hope that they forget, like, it's a CG character. I'm like, no. Nope. Sorry. Like, I, I know, but that'd be nice, but no. But that being said... It also, but they did achieve something that they did, which was it felt seamless in the world. Oh, definitely. It was very accurate for the world. And so I think that they did achieve that 100%. And and they were right. The technology was there. It's still an incredible feat. It's still a lot of work. It's still cutting edge. But but they did a great job with it. She She looks great. She fits in the world. And again, the performance really comes through. And so uh I think she did I think she did a really good job playing Alita. I mean I I I would I wouldn't want anybody in the cast to change. I think everybody did a good job. Um But yeah, no, I agree. Kristoff was definitely a good good 
Good choice. Yeah, definitely a good choice. I'm glad he did it. He, I mean, he was very fun in that movie. Well, I think uh, overall, I would just say I had a good time with it. Um, I was glad that I walked away with the film probably the least thinking about the visuals. And I think that that's a testament to the filmmaker doing a good job, that everything feels cohesive, everything feels correct. The main thing that I will say that, you know, if you've listened through all this and we've spoiled a bunch of stuff, but you still haven't seen the movie, I will just say one last thing is that, just to make clear, she is a human with a synthetic or robotic body. So she's not a robot. She's not an AI. Just just want to clarify that because I think a few people got confused, especially from some of the trailers and stuff. If you've never seen any stuff, you'd just be like, yeah. huh? He, human brain. Yes. Human. Human spirit, human brain, just I not a human body. There is. Synthetic heart. Synthetic heart, but there was, I thought there was something else that was human, but for sure brain. For yeah, sure. basically yeah. just brain and kind of essence. You know, they don't ever really say spirit, but I mean, you could you can make that argument. Yeah, that's, I mean, see, see, that's something that Ghost in the Shell kind of digs into. Mm. It's just like, like that's the whole idea of Ghost in the Shell is just yeah. the ghosts that are inside machines type thing. Gotcha. Um, but... Yeah, that's a whole nother tangent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh I think it's I think it definitely starts out pretty light and it gets pretty dark. And then it kind of ends up in a you know, I would say a hopeful place. It still is fairly dark, but it's hopeful. Um but it's, it's a good journey, it's fun, it's inspiring, it's certainly exciting, interesting, good good sequences of action and uh visually interesting. Um but, uh, so yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it. I, I think it's a pretty, if you're inter- if you've ever been interested in watching something that's more anime in style, but you're not a hundred percent sure where to start for adults and older teens, I think this is a pretty good foray. And if you watch this and you're like, I really don't like this, then you're probably not going to like almost any anime stuff. Cause this is pretty measured and pretty Western friendly, um, anime, anime. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is kind of twice distilled you know so if if you're still like i don't vibe with this i think you're going to struggle with most animes just to be honest but if you like this you know then you know might be a good a good testing to see if there's some other stuff you you'll enjoy but um now next episode again switching gears and genres this one uh, is a recommendation from me for Joel, A Few Good Men, which I'm actually surprised you haven't seen. It's just one of those I never watched. But I feel like this was a movie that was like, this was a movie I think I saw originally because it was on like, at my grandparents on cable. Like I just feel like this was a movie that was on places. Like it just ended up being like on cable or people had the VHS or it just, I don't know. It was one of those movies I just felt like was around. See, and whenever it was popular, I don't think my parents wanted me to be around that at that moment. And I don't even know what it's about. I think maybe it was one of those <laughs> deals of maybe my parents just hadn't watched it yet. Probably. Uh, A Few Good Men uh, goes back to 
the really interesting tradition of plays becoming a movie. So it is written by Aaron Sorkin. So Aaron Sorkin wrote The West Wing and Moneyball, to name a couple. Molly's Molly's Game. Yeah, Moneyball was really good. And uh, American President, all sorts of stuff. And he is really known for his writing style with dialogue. So just just really well known. And so uh, A Few Good Men is very much a film about people talking. It's a lot of talking. I know that that sounds boring. It's not because it's Aaron Sorkin. It's actually really interesting. <laughs> uh, I'll have you know one of my favorite movies is 12 Angry Men. Okay. We, we, we've talked about this, yeah. but just so the listeners know, like Absolutely. 12 Angry Men is definitely one of my favorite movies. I still remember the time that my dad let me watch it. You know, he sat us down and he prepared us. You know, the opening scene, it shows them going into the, the what do you call it? The, the like, the, the debating the, the room? Jur- yeah, the jurors box? Or box, the- or, you know, going going to have the jury talk and debate. Oh, yeah. Okay. And yeah. he, you know, he paused it right there, and he <laughs> said, this is the only scene outside of this room. So... Yeah. You need to listen. Other than them leaving the room. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so he was like, this is all about listening. This is yeah. all about, like, let's figure this out. Let's okay. let's watch this. Let's do, like, just enjoy the conversation. Those probably aren't the words he used, but that was sure. what he was getting at, was like, look, this is a good movie, but it's all about dialogue. Yeah. And so I think actually you had mentioned, while we were talking about movies, you had mentioned 12 Angry Men. And I was like, yeah, I really like this too. I said, have you seen A Few Good Men? You're like, no. I said, okay. I think that that's like, to me, this is this is like a good companion piece. It's a very different world because of the setting is a military court. Yeah. It's the JAG. Yeah. Really strong performances. It's also directed by Rob Reiner, who is at the time kind of in this run. Because Rob Reiner does um, uh, Spinal Tap. (laughs) And Princess Bride. And uh, he does a romantic comedy. It might be Sleepless in Seattle, I want to say. Like, Rob Reiner had a run for a while. Like... Everything in the 90s. Rob Reiner. I actually do remember that. Well, a little earlier. Like, he starts in the 80s. And so he... Princess he but, Bride was in the 80s, so... Yeah, and definitely Spinal Tap and... Yeah. and anyways, 80s, but yeah. 80s into the 90s. Because yeah. I know A Few Good Men is in the 90s. For sure. And so, yeah, he just kind of has this run where he's changing genres all the time and different different storytelling techniques and stuff. And it's like they're all working. and And this is kind of... At the, you know, not the end of it, but it's kind of into that run. And so it's working off a really strong script based off a play, but it's been adapted by the same author. And so uh, all the Sorkin things are there in a form. And then it's being directed by Rob. And again, he's just kind of in this really solid state where it's, he's just not, not having any misses. It's like what he makes is just kind of working. And then you fill out the cast. Um, it's got Demi Moore and um, 
there the other guy in the tag team i'm blanking on his name he's a guy you'll recognize you'll be like oh yeah i've seen him in blah blah blah. like he's definitely one of those guys that you'll be like i recognize him um and uh, jack nicholson's in it and at the time probably the two like headliner uh, kevin bacon's in it i'm pretty sure but like the two headliners are nicholas cage nicholas (laughs) great (laughs) Not Nicolas Cage. That'd be a that'd be a movie. Woo. I was just I'm just imagining a few of the iconic lines being said by Nicolas Cage, man. Oh, that's a different movie. Um Kevin Bacon's in it, yes, for sure. Uh I think actually Kiefer Sutherland's in it, maybe. But the be a pretty young Kiefer. Yeah, yeah, he is if he is. Um but uh but definitely the headliners are Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise. Yeah. And I'll say they, they're both, neither of them are phoning it in. Like, this is not a paycheck movie. They're, they're liking doing this. You can tell. They're enjoying playing these characters. They're enjoying the script. They're enjoying the dynamic of, because this is the, this is the thing that people forget about dialogue heavy movies. The actors are all together. The actors are all playing off each other. And so, I don't care how good of an actor you are, there is something special about sitting down or standing across from actors and being completely immersed in the scene and just running a bunch of dialogue for five minutes. You can't replicate that. You, you get into a space and a time, and you start to have these little things happen, and they're, they can be magical. And so... I think that that's really the the reason this film is really a movie. You know, it's not just a play. Because the play works. So you could just look at the play and go, yeah, we can just film this on a soundstage. Great. Done. Be fine. But this is a movie using movie language. There's close-ups and dolly shots and locations and insert shots of people's reactions and stuff. And because you can focus all that, it's not just... Oh, here's a play. It's it's a movie and it's really doing it's doing the work to help you catch all of these awesome performances. Yeah. And all of these intricacies and really helping the viewer catch all the stuff they need to 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 grab the subtext of the scene. And and I think it does a really good job of being a film that leads you to the conclusion without being predictable. Because it is sub- it is one of those movies that it wants you to figure it out one step ahead of the, of, the, of the character. Not three steps ahead. Not predictable. But it wants to give you enough breadcrumbs that as it's going, going oh yeah, I picked up on that. Oh wait, they're going to do this. Oh, he, huh. You know, and because yeah. what it does is it makes you excited. You're going, oh, this is about to happen, isn't it? And and so it pulls you in and you you lean in a little bit I think, yeah. um, and obviously there's big payoffs at the end because it's a trial based movie. So what else is there, right? I mean, yeah. the conclusion of the trial has to be the big, <laughs> right. the big moment. But it's it works before that. Um, Tom Cruise is still young, but also kind of at the height of his raw charisma. He he is movie star Tom Cruise, but like his career has gone through several kind of uh, eras, and 
if you've never encountered much of pre-Mission Impossible Tom Cruise, it's a different beast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have. Um, <clears throat> did I watched Interview with a Vampire. Okay, that's an interesting period. Yeah. So this is, I think, just, I think this is before that. Yeah. Even. And so this is like yeah, the it, firm, I want to say, is real close to when he did A Few Good Men, a year or two, give or take either, either direction. And yeah, young Tom Cruise has an energy and a raw talent and a freaking raw charisma that is just just different. There's definitely some of the charisma like you would see in like Top Gun, some of that like confidence, bravado stuff yeah. is definitely definitely some overlap with this performance. But what I really like about this performance that's different is one of the few times I feel like this is a performance where Tom Cruise actually his character gets to question himself. Oh. Like he's not spending the whole movie being like, I am correct. He spends part of the movie thinking, I am correct, and then he goes, Maybe I'm wrong. Or maybe maybe we're gonna lose. Like there's still and I love it because you just you don't you know, we don't get that Tom Cruise anymore. Really. Like Tom Cruise is such a baked in quantity now. Yeah. But it's really fun to watch him early and he's he's just doing interesting work. He's taking on interesting characters. And there's a really strong supporting cast. And when I say supporting cast, I mean like a Kevin Bacon character. Like that's the supporting cast for me. His co leads are really Jack Nicholson and Demi Moore and the other guy. I'm sorry, other guy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't look up your name. I'm I've sorry. heard it. I know it. You're you're really good. I don't mean it as a bad thing. You're just, you're not Tom Cruise, okay? <laughs> yeah. So, the, yeah. So this is actually, like, this is also one of those really influential movies, mm. too, is it not? Like, because, I mean, this is... Kind of. This is the one, you know, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Right, which is what I saw Nicolas Cage trying to say, and that's why I started laughing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. it's, I mean, it's it, definitely a top quotable movie in that it has a you know it has a couple of lines like that that are really, as far as influence, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure what is the impact of this movie, uh, other than probably its most outstanding legacy is that Aaron Sorkin is like cemented as a thing, like now Aaron Sorkin works in Hollywood, yeah, and and writes American President, which leads to West Wing, and then West Wing basically is, okay, it's it's Aaron Torkin. He can, like, pretty much do what he wants, I mean, to some extent. Yeah. West Wing went on for, like, what, 15? Not that long. I think it's nine. I've watched all of them, so I should know, but... <laughs> you should. I should. How dare you? It was a lot. It, and It, it and went on for a long time. It he, did. he left. Now, he left, like, after... Four seasons or something, yeah. and it's 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 interesting, um, but that's a whole other thing. I'm gonna refrain from, um, but yeah. So I mean, probably the most outstanding, you know, the longest term impact of this movie is probably just having Aaron Sorkin really arrive in Hollywood and be established by this movie is would be my guess. It's a it's definitely a strong stepping stone in Tom Cruise's career. You know, it's definitely one of his correct steps leads him to another thing. I think he's he's kind of put together a body work with um, those mid-90s movies where he is 
an established star who's still proving acting chops. Yeah. He's not just a young guy who's kind of just taking interesting roles. Um, he's now officially like a headliner. I can, I am the star power, but he is still really uh, trying to be multidimensional, multifaceted and take on those challenges. And he hasn't really found a, a, a niche thing. He's not, he's not the, I, you know, the head of a franchise or known for a certain type of movie. You know, he's not like the Oscar bait Meryl Streep um, or or whatever, you know, actor or actress you want to put there. I say Meryl Streep because it's like Meryl Streep does a movie and Meryl Streep is nominated. <laughs> <laughs> and and what's and the worst thing about that is that nobody is mad because it's Meryl Streep and it, they're like, yep, she's amazing. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, and he's not he's not really an action star at this time, you know, so it's just. You know, he's still just Tom Cruise. You know, he's a megastar. He's an A-lister, but he's not what we know him as nowadays. Um, So I had to look it up real fast, and this is one of his earlier films. And, I mean, like, it's one of his earlier, like you said, he has different... This is pro- this is early in his star power days. Yeah, yeah. Because he so. works in the 80s, like, the early early he's like he's in the outsiders and stuff like that and risky he does business risky business born on the 4th of july with oliver yeah. stone yeah um stuff like that but then he does when does he do top gun is it it's before it, a few good men right yeah top gun is actually uh 86 okay yeah i was like early early 80s is when he's still kind of pre that stuff but then he yeah. has he has risky business which is kind of a breakout popular movie and yeah. then, yeah, Top Gun. What else did he do, like, the year of Top Gun or real close to it? There's another movie right around there that I feel like was a big movie for him. But I'm not for sure. The Color of Money? Maybe. I mean, I wouldn't consider that a huge movie for him. It was a sol- It was a hit. Like, it was a good, solid production, and he got to act against Paul Newman. Yeah. Really well respected. He also, that's kind of the first movie where he did the thing that's become normal for Tom Cruise, which is, I'm going to work really hard to learn the thing I'm supposed to do on screen. So he like became like a champion. He learned like how to do most of the trick shots for the billiards playing in the color of money. Oh. Like he's supposed to be like a pool hustler. So he, he did that, you know. So like that's probably the first time I've heard of Tom Cruise doing the now kind of famous Tom Cruise thing. Yeah. Running and jumping over a building and breaking his ankle? No, more like the, I'm going <laughs> to learn how to fly a helicopter. I'm going to learn how to halo jump so I can do the halo jump sequence. Like, he's like, I'm going to learn how to play like hustle level pool so I can play the hustler. I forget if it was either like a Kimmel or something like that, a late night mm-hmm. interview. And they were like, you have, uh, you have a couple of license, don't you? And he was just like, yeah. Uh. Yeah, I do. And he's like, "Well, you have your helicopter's license." He's just like, "Yes." 
It's a smaller list to tell me what license I don't have. Pretty much if it's got wings and an engine. Oh, oh, I mean, like, he started going through them all, and he was like, dude, I have my my realtor license. I have (laughs) my... Like, he just kept going (laughs) off, dude. He's like, I got this license, I got this license, I got this license, Uh, contractor uh, license, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's hilarious yeah so yeah no it, tom cruise he does he does like everything he's not really in much uh right around 86 okay uh, other than top gun and, so top and gun Color and, and then like what's the next big thing um young guns that was kind of yeah. big rain man rain man was big yeah. born on the fourth of july days of thunder and then you got Far and away, and then a few good men. Oh, far and away! Wow, that's that's an interesting movie. Um, I, I will say probably the most. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's where he met Nicole. Nicole Kidman. Kidman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they worked together on that. Yeah, probably. Um, uh, but yeah, so then you got Few Good Men, The Firm, Interview with a Vampire, and then you have Mission Impossible. Yeah. So that's whenever you start. Yeah, so basically you have an era, I would say, it's Top Gun until Mission Impossible. Yeah. Which you is, got Jerry Maguire in there, which is still, I would consider that probably pre... Jerry Maguire, is it after Mission Impossible? It is. I wonder if it was but shot it's before. It, it's, uh, they came out the same year. Okay, so here's why I say this is important. Tom Cruise started a production company, and Mission Impossible was their first... Uh, like his agent and he and they started a production company. Mission Impossible was their first production. So once you hit the Mission Impossible era, he does not do any movies that he doesn't produce. He starts being in charge of productions and being a producer and selecting everything and becoming really kind of an actor auteur at that point. You can make the case because at that point, his career is very firmly in his own hands. But just to bring it back to A Few Good Men, get off our Tom Cruise excursion for a minute (laughs) um the main thing you know i'm always curious is what what are your expectations walking into a few good men what would make it successful for you what would make you walk away going man that really met or exceeded my expectations i mean just the conversation like obviously we got to have the good conversation and knowing it's a rob rainier I I don't feel like I will get disappointed. It is Rob Reiner. Rob Reiner, sorry. Okay. Sorry. My brain was trying to figure out who you meant. Rob Reiner. Knowing that it's Rob Reiner, it, I don't feel like I'll I will get disappointed in it. But I don't know necessarily what will make it successful for me because, you know, I I, I got to watch the movie, man. Yeah. But I will tell you, I, I am pretty excited. This is one of those movies that I've... It's been on my list, kind, kind of like you and Dunkirk. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's on my list, but it's like, I don't I don't know. I need I need some motivation to watch it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I, I think this is a really good film to introduce people into, like, what I would consider a good quality adult film. It is R, barely, in my opinion. You could easily edit it for television. Like, it's kind of one of those. It's like, basically, you, refu- you like you remove, like, a few sentences and maybe, like, two shots. 
I think I remember it being on television a couple of times. I think that's why it was on TV a lot because it was a pretty popular movie, big stars, but it was pretty easy to trim it down for television. You didn't have to cut much time. I mean, it legitimately, I think it's like a couple of F words and a couple of sentences that are maybe like a little off color or something and maybe one intense shot of something related to the story or something. I don't remember how rough it is on that like one or two shots being like, hey, this is an adult film. It's paced for adults. It's geared towards adult themes. But, you know, it's not a slimy movie. You don't go through the whole thing. I'm like, ugh, I just feel awful. Yeah. But but it is definitely geared at an older audience. I, I do remember, like, my grandparents talking about it. And, <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> but like you said, older, all the older people, yeah. you know. Wh- whenever we were, what, like... Six, seven years old, you know? Yep. Man, that makes me feel old. <laughs> Full circle. Right? Yeah. Now I'm the old guy watching this movie. To all of our listeners, if you haven't seen A Few Good Men, I would highly recommend you watch it before we talk about it because we're just going to have to spoil a bunch of stuff because you have to talk about it. And it's really easy to find. Uh, it is streaming. If you don't know where it's streaming, you can either look up using imdb.com or justwatch.com. Both of those have a lot of really good tools to help you find when and where stuff is streaming or where you can rent it digitally if you need to. I'd also recommend if you don't have the DVD, maybe like Joel, just try your grandparents' house (laughs) or the library. They still have those things called DVDs. And uh, have a good time. Sit down, pay attention, listen don't watch this with subtitles. Turn it up loud enough. Hear the hear the people talking and yakking. It's worth the it's worth doing. So again, thank you for listening to Secondhand Movies. I'm Morgan and I'm Joel. Have a great night or day or whatever you're doing. You're probably listening to this at work or riding your bike. <laughs> riding your bike? Are they old like us? Why would they be riding a bike?